U.S. President Harry S. Truman once said of the economy, it's an economic recession when your neighbor loses his job. It's an economic depression when you lose your own job. Translating it to our situation today with COVID, maybe it can be said, it's a minor problem if you only read about COVID-19. It's a health crisis if your friend gets COVID. It's a pandemic if you get COVID. Truth and how you respond to truth is often colored by our experience and the people in our circles. Of course, it shouldn't be the case as truth is truth regardless of experience and the people that surround us. But that is the reality of the world we live in where truth and living out truth changes with the circumstance. Therefore, it's important that when it comes to truth, it must be spoken clearly. And if there's any deviation from the truth in word or action, it must be corrected even from someone respected who is changing truth. As we continue our study in the book of Galatians, Paul has been defending his preaching of the true gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the message of faith alone in Christ alone to be saved. He was writing to the Galatian Christians because a group known as the Judaizers had infiltrated the churches in the region and advocated for a false gospel message, which was that in addition to faith, Gentile Christians had to follow Jewish customs and practices like circumcision. They were advocating for a work salvation. And because Paul's message contradicted theirs, they attacked Paul, which necessitated Paul to defend himself from their attacks. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. Again, that's Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. In the passage we're going to study today, to our surprise, the Apostle Paul is reprimanding and rebuking the Apostle Peter. Why does Paul do it? And how does Paul do it? These are important questions we want to ask as we look to see how we are to respond when there is a deviation of truth in word, and in this case, in actions lived out. How Paul responds gives us some principles for how we can do the same in our context. Look at me at verse 11 of Galatians chapter 2. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Last week, we talked about Paul having met with the leaders of Jerusalem to share that the gospel he shared to the Gentiles is the same gospel as the one the apostles preached. Among the leaders of Jerusalem was Peter, and so Paul and Peter had met. However, when Peter came to Antioch in Syria, most likely after Paul and Barnabas had returned from Jerusalem, Peter did something that Paul took issue with and confronted him. Now, let me stop here and note some things. First of all, just because you are an apostle or a spiritual leader like the apostle Peter does not mean that you will not make mistakes or have blind spots. That's why accountability is important for all people, especially leaders, so that there are people who will speak truth into your life and point out your blind spots or areas of failings. Secondly, just because you are an apostle or a spiritual leader like the Apostle Peter, it doesn't mean you can't be confronted by others or rebuked if you are in the wrong. No human is infallible. We're all sinful people and therefore imperfect. Just because you hold a spiritual title or position doesn't mean you can't be rebuked. Paul was a Johnny latecomer to the Christian faith. At that time, he didn't have the pull and authority that Peter had. But Peter should humbly accept what Paul said to him as a fellow leader and brother in Christ. Thirdly, 
Just because there's an apostle or a spiritual leader who has lots of authority, popularity, and charisma, like the apostle Peter, it doesn't mean he's untouchable if he or she has done wrong. As a fellow Christian, out of our love for them and correction, you may need to confront and call them out if it is your place to do so, and if you feel convicted that the truth has somehow been compromised in word or actions lived out. Now let's put this all together. Truth encounter principle number one. Number one of your taking notes. No one is above correction as no one is perfect. No one is above correction as no one is perfect. That's something we all need to understand. If we are the recipient of rebuke, we must humbly accept that correction. For those who are in a leadership position and they have messed up, that they must be willing to be confronted and to be corrected. And we who do so must not be intimidated to do such a thing. But just to show how it must have been so hard for Paul to confront the Apostle Peter about an erring action, let's take an example of you ranting about a government official. Let's say hypothetically, it's the president. You often write certain things on social media posts. You use choice words to describe him or her and his decision and policy. How many of you would use those same words if you had a chance to speak with the president one-on-one to tell him that he's a fool and that you disagree with many of his policies and practices? I think many of us who rant and rave wouldn't have the audacity or the courage to call out the president when we are in his presence. By the way, this is only a hypothetical example. I'm not alluding to anyone in particular. That's why there's a saying that if you dare say it in private, you should be able to say it in public. If you don't dare to say it in public, then don't say it at all. Calling out a friend, rebuking them, and correcting them is something very difficult to do, and yet there are certain situations that call for it one of which is the compromise of truth in words or compromise of truth lived out in action. So what did Peter do in Antioch that merited Paul to rebuke him publicly? Let's take a look at verses 12 to 14. Let me read from Galatians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. For before a certain man came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews who played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Those are certainly strong words. What Peter was doing was that when he came to Antioch, he would eat with the Christians who were Jewish and who were Gentiles alike. He had no problems. But when some Jewish Christians came from Jerusalem to visit Antioch, Peter withdrew from the Gentile Christians of Antioch and no longer ate with them. We can ascertain that these Jews from Jerusalem were probably Judaizers who believed that Gentiles needed to follow Jewish customs or undergo circumcision before they became Christians. Now, we don't know if these people pressured Peter to pull away from the Gentile Christians in Antioch or Peter himself withdrew to avoid inflaming the rising conflict in the church But Peter's action caused other Jewish Christians like Barnabas to do the same. Simply put, as Paul writes it, Peter and the others who did these were hypocrites. They said one thing that Gentile Christians, without following Jewish customs, were fully welcomed into the church with equal standing, but instead did another thing 
breaking fellowship with them unless they conformed to their Jewishness. Look at me at verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Here in verse 14, it tells us that Paul, seeing what Peter was doing publicly before them all, called him out and rebuked him. Paul criticized Peter for his hypocrisy and not being consistent in how he treated all people based on the gospel he was preaching. Peter's action demanded such a public reprimand because firstly, Peter's status as a leader in the church prompted others like Barnabas to do the same. Second, Peter's action disrespected the Gentile believers in Antioch and would have stumbled them as they would have felt like second-class Christians compared to their Jewish brethren. Thirdly, Peter's actions conflicted with his own theological convictions that God accepts both Jews and Gentiles equally by faith alone, which certainly would have caused confusion since the truth he conveyed in his words and his actions didn't match. Lastly, Sadly, it would give credibility to the false teachers, the Judaizers, who had come from Jerusalem to stir up trouble here in Antioch. For these and other reasons, Paul had to call out Peter. And here is truth encounter number two. Number two, call out hypocritical and inconsistent actions. Call out hypocritical and inconsistent actions and do it for correction out of love. Often the biggest charge against Christians by non-Christians is their hypocrisy. They say of us, Christians say one thing, but do another. In my travels through 14 U.S. states, we stayed for free in most of the hotels because I had a ton of points accumulated over 20 plus years, collected over half a million points, and it was time to use them since Cindy was worried that the IHG hotel group would go out of business and the value of these points would disappear. Anyway, we stayed confidently because of IHG's clean promise during this pandemic. And here's what they say in their clean promise in all of their locations. Good isn't good enough. We're committed to high levels of cleanliness. That means clean, well-maintained, clutter-free rooms that meet our high standards. If this isn't what you find when you check in, then we promise to make it right. Well, we tested out this clean promise and found it to be true in the 10 properties we stayed at. But in two of them, we found a sock that a previous guest had left under the bed, meaning they didn't clean that well. And in the other instance, a used towel on the shelf, which the cleaner probably didn't see. Having traveled so much, I knew that sometimes slip-ups are normal and simply informed management about it to alert them to remind their cleaning staff to be more careful, especially during the pandemic and because of their clean promise. The response from these two hotels couldn't be more different. The hotel with the left sock was so apologetic, invited us to transfer to another room and even gave us 10,000 points, which is one free night to make up for this oversight. In fact, the general manager called me up to apologize again and to see if anything could be done to make up for this oversight, which they would use for their training purposes. 
The hotel with the left towel, on the other hand, acknowledged the mistake, and they began to make excuses that the cleaning staff was limited and that they tried their best and we were to simply accept the circumstance. No offers to change room, no offers to make it up. So, of course, with that hotel, I wrote a strongly worded complaint with the IHG Global Management Group. With the other who went out of their way to make it up, I wrote a nice compliment to the IHG Management Group because they have a fundamental responsibility to uphold their promise. And me, being in the highest tier of their loyalty program, expected them to do so. Now listen carefully. It's not for any other reason other than for me to get them to improve and to do better. And that should be the intent of calling out somebody for hypocrisy and inconsistency. It's not to play the gotcha game, but to encourage them to better live out their lives as Christ's followers and because you love and are concerned for them that you want them to avoid any problems. Perhaps if we were to give Peter and Barnabas some benefit of the doubt, we could say that they were trying to reach out to these Jews from Jerusalem who had these wrong beliefs and they did not meet with the Gentile Christians so as not to offend them. But my friends, the ends do not justify the means, especially if the means to reach them goes against biblical teachings. Peter knew that Jews and Gentiles were equal in the church, but his actions said otherwise, and he was called out by Paul for his inconsistent actions. For example, if you tell your children, no gambling under any circumstance, because the Bible says so as a blanket statement, but then they see you playing mahjong without money or playing poker with fake chips or even engage in a friendly wager. Do you need to perhaps explain yourself better what you mean when you tell them no gambling? And more importantly, where did you find your biblical basis? Or this was the situation from a previous generation. They said that it was their convictions that they wouldn't watch movies in the movie theaters but then they would watch the same movies at home, perhaps on DVD or streaming. But it was never explained to you if it was the movie itself that was the problem or the theater, or was there another issue? Now, I'm not bringing up these issues without a solution, but I'm simply noting these as problems if you are inconsistent with how you explain certain things. Now, we're going to tackle these issues of balance later in our series. But again, I point this out to say that our actions are often so inconsistent that it causes confusion, especially when our actions and positions are not explained properly or our convictions are not clearly defined or nuanced. The natural tendency is for people to look for a loophole in your life. Now, also, some may say why Paul didn't take Peter aside and deal with this privately instead of dealing with it so publicly. As you know, the Bible gives some guidelines on dealing with a fellow believer who is in error. Look at me at Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, where Jesus instructs us how to deal with things privately. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Now, but on the other hand, the Bible also says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. 
that there are times when corrections are to be done publicly. Look what Paul writes to Timothy. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may also fear. Now I believe the general guiding principle in the Scripture is to correct in private. And if the person doesn't change, then have a public confrontation. It's very likely that Paul did this, correcting first in private, but then moving on to a public confrontation. But then again, Peter's offense was indeed public, which influenced others like Barnabas. So it also required a public rebuke or correction. Whatever the case, the public rebuke of Peter is justified in light of what he and others were doing. Now, there are three truths that Paul points out that support his decisions to call out Peter's hypocritical actions. Let's take a look. Verses 15 and 16. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Paul finishes his narration of his confrontation of Peter and now begins to lay out his deeper argument points why he had to do what he did. Paul isn't confronting and rebuking Peter for his own ego, but because Peter's actions, coupled with the Judaizers' false teachings, probably confused the Galatian Christians, which necessitated this letter. The truths and argument points Paul makes are in summary here, but will be extrapolated and explained in further detail in chapters 3 and 4 of this book. Now let's take a look. Here in verses 15 and 16, Paul gives a definition of what it is that justifies. In other words, what is it that truly saves us, which allows us to be declared righteous by God and thus worthy to enter heaven? You see, justification is a legal term or act. It says that the verdict of the righteous heavenly judge sees us as the former condemned sinner, but now having been declared righteous. Of course, it is because of the atoning shed blood of Jesus that we can even be justified or declared righteous. And because we are justified, God forgives us. You see, truth encounter number three is this. Justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. Justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. This is one of the bedrock truths of our Christian faith. This serves as a reminder to the readers of this book and to Peter and anyone else who may wonder why they must be consistent in their actions in the treatment of Jews and Gentile Christians to show that this truth can indeed be lived out in action. Verse 16 is one of the most central verses in the book, perhaps even in the Bible. It's a very important verse, putting into a nutshell what it means to be justified. So important was this doctrinal truth that Paul repeats this very same doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone three different times with increasing intensity all in one verse. The first statement or phrase in this verse 16 is a statement of fact. Man is not justified, man is not declared righteous by the works of the law or by doing certain actions, but by faith in Jesus. The second phrase in verse 16 says this, 
even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. What does this mean? It shows that it is an essential element of our faith in Jesus Christ alone that the very fact that there is no amount of works or obedience to the law is in play. That is what saves us. It is faith alone. Because if you believe in Jesus plus good works to save you, then you are not really saved. Because you don't believe in Jesus alone. The very element of faith is complete trust. For example, if I were to get on an airplane and trust that the engineers who designed this airplane have a proper understanding of aerodynamic concepts like lift or, or drag, and have designed the airplane wing such that with enough speed it will fly. If someone were to ask you, do you trust in this plane? And you say, yes, I do. But then in your actions, you try to bring with you on this plane a smaller plane, if that was possible. In case the bigger plane falls and fails, you have a smaller plane as a backup. That's not trust. I use this ridiculous example because no, no airline, no airplane will allow you to bring another smaller airplane on it. Just as ridiculous, it is impossible to have faith and trust both in Jesus and good works. It doesn't work that way. The very element of faith means complete trust. The third phrase, which speaks about justification at the end of verse 16, is this, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. This is a definitive statement that by obedience to the law or any good works, and in this context, following the Jewish laws and customs, no one is justified. No one will ever be declared righteous. That means however you look at it, adherence to the law, a salvation by works, simply does not save. It just doesn't work. Look with me at verse 17. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. Paul then continues by defending another charge from the Judaizers that somehow justification by faith alone led to behavior that promoted more sin and lawlessness. Paul responded by saying that by that logic, therefore, Christ is a promoter of sin, which, of course, we know he is not. And to counter that charge, Paul talks about the law's problems and its inadequacies in verses 18 and 19. And that if you follow the law, you will be tied down to the law. You will be tied down to legalism and works. And in fact, it will make us more of a sinner. Let's take a look at verse 18. For if I build again these things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Here in verse 18, it says that if a Christian puts himself back under the law, meaning he has to follow certain rules to be a Christian, which were destroyed, the Bible says in verse 18, then these laws will quickly show that you are still a sinner because you can't live out these laws perfectly. If you place yourself under rules for a Christian, you will quickly come to the realization that you and I can't live it out perfectly. And that means we're still sinners. The focus is now that you are a sinner. 
and not on the fact that you are saved in Jesus Christ. And in this way, rules and legalism binds. You know, there are some Christians who have a great desire to live out Christ-like lives, but they don't understand grace and the freedom we have in Christ. And so they think they're the worst of Christians because they continue to struggle with sin. They mistakenly believe that perhaps as a Christian they should never sin. And they take it to its extreme thought that if they continue to struggle with sin, then perhaps they're somehow not saved or they're no good. They put themselves up against the standards with rules that the Bible never talks about of what defines if you're a Christian or not. And so they focus on their failings and they are depressed and they do not enjoy the many joys and the excitement of a life of grace that God gives. My friends, isn't it wonderful that Christians are no longer under the laws of the Old Testament? We are all sinners, imperfect, yet made perfect in Christ and are justified by His shed blood. I want you to let that thought linger in your hearts and minds. We don't have to aim for perfection through our own willpower because perfection is already ours in Christ as it relates to our standing in salvation. This is such a freeing theological truth. There is nothing we have to do to prove anything, no pilgrimages to make, nothing to buy, nothing to do that will make God love us more. I've said this many a times. As a Christian, there is nothing we do or say that will make Christ love us more or love us less. There is nothing we can do or say that will make Christ love us more or love us less. In fact, there is nothing that we do or say that will make us more saved or less saved as our salvation is secured. Just let that truth sink in. It should bring a smile to your face just as it does mine. You see, the practical application is why then do we need to engage in unhealthy competition? Why is there a need to fight for positions or visibility in the church? Our standing, if we place our trust in the Lord, is that we are all the same, secured because of Jesus. Paul continues with inadequacies of justification by law. Look at verse 19. For I, through the law, die to the law that I might live to God. This verse illustrates that the law killed all because no one could live up to its perfection. And therefore, since we hypothetically died in and to the law, then we are no longer responsible to keep it. Our responsibility to obeying the law as a means of salvation is done. The law has died to us. We've died to the law. And therefore, I now have the freedom to live for the Lord, no longer bound in any way to the law. Instead, I can freely live for the Lord, not worried about being shackled by a set of rules. Now, to help you understand this, let me use a made-up story. And let's say a deranged father held his child as a hostage or a prisoner for many years. The father is caught and imprisoned by the authorities. The child wants the father to go to jail. But as, as he is put into jail, the child feels sorry for him being there because at the end, your father is still your father. It's a complex emotional feeling. So maybe that child feels obliged or obligated to visit and even bring food on his father's birthday because the dad wasn't terribly evil, 
did some positive things like feeding them and clothing them. But it's a, a conflicting thing. But let's say hypothetically the father dies in jail. And while it's sad, it's a bit freeing if you admit it. Because you don't have to feel conflicted anymore. You don't owe any more obligations. You can move on. You don't have to think about the situation this puts you in. The conflicted burden is now lifted. So it is with the law. As believers, you and I have died to it. It doesn't have a hold on you anymore. You are no longer obligated to it. In these verses, Paul gives truth encounter number four, which is the inadequacies of justification by obedience or good works. The inadequacies of justification by obedience or good works. Look at me at verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. In this oft-mentioned verse, Paul says in verse 20 that because of his participation in Christ's death, when he placed his faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus, that the life Paul now lives is not for himself. It is for Christ. Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, stopped living for himself, but for the Lord Jesus Christ. Note what Paul writes, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul puts into perspective the reason for why we do what we do as Christians. And it's not because we need to follow a set of rules or practices or customs, but because of God's unconditional love through the sending of his only son, Jesus Christ, for you and for me. You see, my friends, there's a difference between wanting to do something because you love someone or because you are obliged to do it. It's the difference between waking up at 6 a.m. to go to a job you hate or waking up at 6 a.m. to do house chores for the one you are madly in love with. I'm sure you know the difference of feelings. We all know the different types of response when we do something out of love as we reciprocate love. Paul says, I live my life in faith because of God's unconditional love. For those of you who are parents, how many times do you guilt your children into doing something for you or your spouse to do something for you by saying, if you love me, would you do the following? In the same way, Jesus responds to each and every one of us, I love you and I showed you how much I love you by dying on the cross for you. But in our response to his love, he gives us the freedom and liberty for how we are to respond. How we respond to the love of God is up to us in many ways. How sad it would be if there is no response to the love shown by Jesus Christ. And this is an important reason for why Paul is willing to speak up against the Apostle Peter to defend such an important doctrine. Because this truth of freedom in Christ, not bound by law, revolutionized his own life. And of course, it was truth. You see, truth encounter number five is this. Justification in Christ results in the benefit of living freely. Justification in Christ results in the benefit of living freely. You are not bound to do something because you have to do it. You and I have the freedom to do it because you and I want to do it for our Lord and Savior. Look at verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. 
Paul concludes this section by saying he didn't set aside the grace of God, perhaps in contrast to the actions of Peter who did just that when he did not eat with the Gentile believers when the Judaizers came from Jerusalem. Peter put himself under the law, in a sense, by his actions and set aside the grace of God. And if it were so, then Christ died in vain, meaning he died for nothing, since obedience to the law is what really saves and is still required. And of course, that is a false gospel. Paul is laying the groundwork that you can't have it both ways. It's either grace or law as it relates to salvation. You can't have grace or really understand grace if there's going to be a little bit of law or you're holding on to obedience and good works as a means of salvation. What does this look like practically? It means you can't say you place your trust in Christ by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and then put your faith in a lot of other things as a requirement to salvation. This is both a warning and an encouragement to us that we can all be saved and enjoy the freedom to live for Christ. Let me conclude with the story, perhaps to help you better understand the joys of living under grace versus putting ourselves under the law. Because of a change in our American airline flight to fly back to the Philippines after multiple cancellations, we had to change our Philippine airline flight from L.A. to Manila. That's the problem of a flight is on two separate tickets, which we got because it's cheaper the change on the Philippine Airlines would be charged to us. And when I checked the internet, the change fee would be more than $2,000. But I called the customer service to see if they would be willing to consider making an exemption and show some mercy in light of the worldwide situation. And so I called, and after waiting 20 minutes to get on the line, I talked to an agent, and she said that after looking at her computer, she can change my L.A. to Manila flight for about $1,500. Right as I was about to agree because I really had no other choice and I needed to fly back home, the phone line cut off and I lost her. I was a bit frustrated, and so I had to call back and got another agent and had to repeat the entire story again. Apparently, this agent was newer and seemingly less experienced. The call lasted more than two hours as she read all the fine prints and details of our ticket to see if a change was allowed and how much. I was getting frustrated and wanted to call back. I wanted to pay my $1,500 change fee and be done with it. In fact, it took so long I even put her on mute and complained to Cindy about how long this was taking. Well, she finally came back online and she told me that she was sorry for the long wait, but she said, Sir, I can change your flight for free. I was amazed. For free? She said, absolutely for free. So this two-hour call saved me $1,500. I believe the Lord allowed the line to be cut off from the first agent so that I could get the second agent to get this change for free. The second agent never told me how she was able to make this change for free. You see, if you live under the law and you want to bind yourself to the law, then you should pay $2,000, which was the rule that the website says was required of this change. If you look at the first agent, and that could typify grace mixed with a little bit of law. She was gracious to give me the change for $1,500, which is a better deal 
but still conform to some of the laws and regulations that required a change. But the second agent, what she did, I do not know. Maybe she was just gracious. Maybe she felt sorry for me for making me wait for two hours. But because she was gracious and merciful, she made the change for free. And I was joyful. You see, there's a difference to live for joy and to live with joy and grace, not bound by the law. If you want to be bound by the law, I hate to say it, go right ahead. But you will not find joy in the Christian life. In fact, you may find it to be quite restrictive. But if you can live, as the Scriptures teach us, to be free in Jesus Christ, you will find joy abundant. May the Lord teach us this important lesson and allow us to live in the balance of honoring Him in the way that we live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Your Word brings life and joy to all who listen and apply. Lord, I know that some of these verses can be difficult to understand, but I hope all of us will take the time to slowly digest it and to think upon these deep spiritual truth to see really how justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone should truly revolutionize our lives. Help us to live with a freedom and the joy that comes in Jesus Christ. May the Holy Spirit continue to teach and guide. We love you, Lord, so much because you first loved us and you showed your love through dying on the cross for every person, including a sinner like myself. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.